0: Hello, Kesed Church. It's great to see you here this morning. I want to welcome all of you and those of you who are joining us online. If you don't know who I am, my name is Ronnie Sasaki, and I am one of the guest speakers here at Kesed, and it's always such a joy and a privilege to be able to come and share with you what God has laid on my heart. Now, if you're here with us for the first time today, we've been in a series for the past few weeks called Forts, and it's a whole series about friendship. And one of the challenges that Pastor Danny put out to us at the very beginning was to build forts. And I knew when he asked me to speak that I was gonna have to build a fort. (laughs) Well, when my kids were living at home, my husband was the person who was in charge of all the fort building. So I was trying to figure out how this was gonna work and I kind of saved it till the very last minute But I own my own business, and one of the benefits of owning your own business is I can show up at work one day with an armload of blankets and sheets and I can announce to my team, guess what we're going to do today? (laughs) We're going to take a break from the daily grind and build a fort. So we went out into the warehouse and we started looking around for things that we can use, and I noticed the forklift. Because you see, this fort had to be big enough to hold six people and two dogs. So what, we, what can we do? Well, we lifted up those forks on the forklift up high, and then we pulled in some pallets, and we strung everything with blankets. And I'll show you a picture of our fort. There you go. It's a masterpiece, right? And then the, the finished product with my whole team inside of there. I thought this was great because I spend probably as much time with these women who are my employees as I do with just about anybody else in my life. So it was a really fun, we'll call it a team-building activity because it was at work. So I'm going to put that challenge out to you. If you haven't built your fort yet, it was really fun. It's worth investing the time with the people that you do life with to just take a little bit of a break and do something completely goofy and completely crazy and then take a picture and send it to the church. And... Um, you'd be surprised what a blessing it is to do something besides the normal thing. We named our fort, it's gone, but it's okay, Forklift Fort. (laughs) Well, I want to tell you straight up that I am not here speaking to you today because I am an expert on friendship. In fact, quite the opposite is true, and I get to be very vulnerable with you today when I admit that this whole idea of friendship is just really hard for me. In fact, the reason that Danny asked me to speak is he and I were in a meeting and I didn't even know about this Fort series yet. And yet I was telling Danny how I struggle to make friends and to be a friend and to be in a group of people, especially when there's strangers mixed in and how difficult that is for me. And even though throughout the course of my life and my career I've I've taken classes, if you can believe such a thing, on on how to mingle, how to meet people, even how to shake hands properly. That certainly is an important skill to have, right? I still experience this discomfort when placed in these social settings. And now, Danny was actually very shocked by this. He said that he never would have guessed that of me. But he also thought, well, perhaps there are some of you that are in this room or online that feel the exact same way. For me, it goes deeper than just being an introvert versus an extrovert. Somewhere down deep inside, I harbor this belief that I am not enough, not worthy. I try to hide these feelings by being an overachiever, somehow in my mind thinking, if I can just do enough, then perhaps I can show everybody else and myself the value that I have and the problem with this particular kind of a strategy is the more that I do the less time that I actually have to invest in being a good friend and so it's it's somewhat doesn't work out very well and now I want to give you some statistics that are somewhat ironic okay I have a hundred excuse me 1499 Facebook friends I mean that's gotta count for something right 54 relatives that live nearby five employees, which you've already seen on the this, this screen, numerous friends from business groups and various different um, groups that I'm a part of, including church, not to mention those friends that you just accidentally once in a while bump into that perhaps was a friend back when you were in grade school or high school and you, you suddenly see them. All of these friends are out there, available. But when it comes to having the kind of friends that I can just walk up to and interrupt them, that I don't have to feel like I'm bothering them. You know the kind of friend that you can pick up the phone and you can call really late at night because just suddenly you find that you just really need to talk to somebody? You know, what about that friend that you just, instead of driving home one time, you just pull over into their driveway and you know it's okay to just show up on their doorstep because they're that kind of friend? Those are the kinds that I am missing out. Here I am at my age and sometimes I feel a little bit lonely because of it. Now my husband Derek and I, we've been married for almost 34 years and he is definitely one of my best friends for sure. But there just comes a time when I just crave the fellowship of another friend who happens to be a woman. Can any of you out there relate to this or am I the only one (laughs) that feels this way? Seems like it was a lot easier to make friends when I was a kid. I remember the day I met my first real best friend who became my friend from the time I was in third grade all the way up into junior high. Now we moved to Camas when I was seven years old and back in those days Camas was just a lot of big cow pastures and long gravel driveways. And when we moved into this house there were a few houses scattered around but there were only boys. And I was at an age where I just really didn't want to hang out with the boys in the neighborhood, so I wanted to make a new friend. Well, one day our bus pulls up to one of these long dirt driveways, and a new girl gets on the bus. She looked like she was about my age, but I was just too shy to go say hello to her. Until my church, because we also attended a little country church out in the middle of one of those cow pastures, they were having a contest. Whoever brought the most visitors to Sunday school over a period of a couple weeks would win a baby lamb. Now, I'm not talking about the stuffed kind. I'm talking about the real, live, sheep kind. And so to entice us to invite people to church, they would bring this lamb up the aisle and then wander around, and it was so cute, it would just bleat. And oh, it probably did a lot of other things in the sanctuary as well, but we don't talk about those. And I wanted that lamb so bad that I was willing to put off my shyness and invite everybody that I came in contact with to come to church with me. I'm at school, and I'm inviting all of my classmates. I'm inviting every single teacher, even the lunch ladies. And I got on the bus and saw Karen sitting all by herself. And I just walked up to her, plopped myself down on the seat and said, do you want to go to church with me so I can win a lamb? (laughs) She looked at me like I was crazy. But surprisingly, she said, sure. And out of all the people that I invited to church with me, she was the only one that showed up. Well, you can imagine, because I only had one guest, I did not win the lamb, and the girl that did, she named that cute, adorable thing Lamb Chop. (laughs) And I'm pretty certain that eventually Lamb Chop really did become a Lamb Chop. (laughs) I did not get the prize of the lamb, but I did get a friend out of that who, like I said, we were friends clear up until junior high when her family ended up moving away. Well, today we're going to sit in, together in a fort of worthiness because I think a lot of us, not just me, struggle with feeling insecure and unworthy of being a friend. And I don't know about you, but some of us may just feel like we just never quite fit in. Anybody else? Am I the only one? Don't raise your hand. It's okay. Anybody else feel the same way? Now, I'm no psychologist, and I've already told you that I am not an expert. There's some things that go through my mind when I'm with people that you will not be aware of, but this is what's playing in my mind. First of all, I compare myself to others. Have you ever done this? I look at other people, and I I wonder where I fit in on the scale with them, never feeling quite like I measure up. Sometimes when I'm with other people, I worry about what I'm going to say or do, something stupid usually. I don't know if you ever feel that way. Sometimes even stupid things come out of my mouth when I'm on a stage in front of a whole bunch of people, and those are really hard to take back. (sighs) There's times when I get in my car and drive away, and I think to myself, could I have just stuffed a sock in my mouth or something to stop saying a stupid thing? And then I think the bottom line, the third thing that is playing through my mind when I'm around other people, and you see if you feel this way as well, is fear of being rejected. The fear that they don't really want to meet me or talk to me. And it it plays in the background. But here's the problem. When we look within ourselves for the value or worthiness that we crave, it's a never-ending spiral because we are never, ever enough. And this is not how God intends for us to feel. And I have really, really wrestled (laughs) with this message because as I've been writing the words down that I wanted to share with you, the Holy Spirit has been saying, Ronnie, I want you to get this. This message is for you just as much as it's for everybody else. It is time to get this. So, the question you may be asking about now is well, where then? Do I find my value? Where do I find my worth? And I'm going to go ahead and jump in with the spoiler alert and give you the end of the message now. Because you see, when we talk about our worth, it is not an evaluation of self. It is a focus on who God is. We enter our fort of worthiness when we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now we're going to take a look at two different people in the bible who actually may have felt unworthy and may have felt rejected but they were actually rejected by society they were tax collectors also called publicans now i said publican not republican i don't want any of you to think and panic that we're going to start talking about politics they were publicans or tax collectors. And they were considered outcasts and dishonored pretty much in every social circle. And I think that before we look at their individual stories, it's really important to set the stage for how these tax collectors were viewed in first century Judea. First of all, it's important for you to understand that they were Jews, but they worked for the very oppressive Roman government. Now, the Jews as a nation were very fanatical nationalists. They believed that God was their king and for them to pay taxes to a foreign government was actually a form of idolatry. And so it was something that they were very much against. The tax collectors would collect the required tax and then they would add a little bit of extra so that that they could pad their pockets with it. And the very much fell as a big burden on the poor, particularly because bribery was rampant among the rich people who would bribe the tax collectors so they could get out of paying as much tax, which increased the burden onto the poor people of their society, increasing the hatred that was felt toward these individuals. Now the other thing you need to understand about the Jewish community at that time is that they were the society was framed in by these polar opposite qualities of honor and shame. They felt very strongly what other people thought of them was important and they didn't want to do anything to bring honor on themselves or on their fam, excuse me, shame upon themselves or on their family but they wanted to do everything they could to not only gain honor but maintain that honor. And being a tax collector not only brought great shame on yourself and your family but even to associate with a tax collector would potentially bring great shame upon one's self. And finally, being a tax collector during this period of time became synonymous with being the worst kind of sinner out there. Now, I don't think anybody in here likes to pay taxes. If you like to pay taxes, raise your hand. Anybody? Well, nobody's raising their hand. That's a big surprise to me. We do it out of a legal obligation, isn't that correct? And although I don't think that nowadays we have the same disdain in our society for, let's say, IRS employees like they did back in those days, um, I think we still all probably harbor a bit of resentment towards those people that we have to pay taxes to. And I got firsthand um, experience with this when I graduated from college. I went to Portland State University and we had our graduation ceremony in the Coliseum, Now that's that great big huge building next to the Moda Center, if you can picture it there. Big room filled to capacity with people. And there were all different degrees represented that evening who were getting their certificates. But one of the degrees stood out in my mind because it was called the Master of Taxation. It was a much smaller group than the rest of them, probably 20 to 25 individuals who had worked really hard to achieve this great honor. But every time the announcer said, Master of Taxation, the entire congregation in the Colosseum booed. (laughs) I thought it was pretty funny. But it kept going the entire evening. Every time these people stood up or was called out, the entire place booed and I began to feel really sorry for them. First of all, you know the taxation people probably were educated to help us reduce our taxes, right? I mean, isn't that why they go to tax school? But everybody's still booed. I thought it was kind of funny. We still see this, this, I don't like these people permeating through our society even today. Well, the first tax collector we're gonna look at is Matthew. Now, he was also known as Levi because it was Fairly common for Jewish men to have two different names. I'm going to call him Matthew. We're going to read about him in Luke. And Luke calls him Levi. Now, when Jesus was going around choosing his disciples, I find it really strange that he would choose a tax collector. Based on everything we've just talked about, you've got to wonder what he was thinking. Let's read in, in Luke 5, 27 through 28. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he, Levi, got up and began to follow him. Now, when we read this, we're not given any reasons at all why Matthew became a tax collector in the first place. and I, It always leads me just to speculate and wonder, Like, did he have a really terrible childhood and Or, you know, did he want to be rich? Maybe he grew up really poor and saw being a tax collector as a way to suddenly have all of the money that he had craved as a kid. Was he just one of these people that was always on the outskirts of society anyway, that never felt like he quite fit in, so he thought, well, I may as well become a tax collector since this is the way I already feel. We really don't know why. This one thing I do know, nobody would have considered him fit for the job of disciple except for Jesus. When he said, follow me, Matthew did not even question his choice. He got up, he left everything behind. Matthew walked away from everything that he had used to fill that gap in his life from being an unworthy, rejected, shameful tax collector, so that he could find his worth in Jesus. But the story doesn't end there. In verse 29, it says, Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were reclining at the table with them. I find it very interesting that as soon as Matthew meets Jesus, he then hosts this dinner, and he invites a bunch of other tax collectors to join them. I don't know if they were his only friends and he wanted to fill the room with people that he he felt comfortable with, but maybe, this is one possibility, Matthew having met his Savior, Jesus, and finding his worth and not being rejected by Jesus, knowing how he felt as a tax collector, wanted all of his associates to meet Jesus and feel the exact same way that he did by meeting with the Son of God. It's funny that when I invited people to church, I wanted to win a lamb. Matthew invited people to meet the Lamb of God. It's a beautiful thing considering the the outcast that he was. And in Luke 5.30 it says, But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to the disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Who knows what the other disciples felt about Jesus choosing Matthew. But it seems only reasonable that somebody would have leaned over to Jesus and said, Hey, Master, what are you thinking? Don't you know it's social suicide to pick that guy and have him join our team? But but Jesus didn't let the disciples answer the question put to them by the scribes and the Pharisees. He jumped in himself and replied to them. In verse 31, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, when Jesus said that he came to call sinners, he's not suggesting here that some people are without sin, because everyone is a sinner, as we read in Romans 3:23, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But what Jesus is saying here is that he came to save those who know they are lost and are desperately desiring to be saved, which was very contrary to how the self-righteous Pharisees saw themselves as those who did not need to be saved. They did not see themselves as sinners and being unworthy. Matthew followed Jesus as the worst kind of sinner of that time, and he was saved. Now the other man who was also a tax collector who we're going to look at here and who desperately sought out Jesus was a man named Zacchaeus. Now I think when Zacchaeus must have heard about Jesus, perhaps all those tax collectors that Matthew had invited to his dinner party were out there spreading the word, telling each other, hey, meet up with this Jesus. He's got the answer to all of your worth issues. So we read about him in Luke 19 passage starting at verse 1 and ending at 10 says he entered Jericho he being Jesus and was passing through there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich he was trying to see who Jesus was but he was not able to because the crowd since he was a short man so running ahead he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus since he was about to pass that way When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. Now we learn a few things about Zacchaeus in this passage. He was a chief tax collector, which meant he supervised other tax collectors we also learned that he was rich, probably even more rich than just a regular tax collector because of his position as a supervisor. I mean, those two facts alone very likely made Zacchaeus extra disliked amongst his community and his countrymen. But I love it that Luke includes the fact that he was short. Now clearly we can understand that he included that because Zacchaeus, you know, it's very important to know that that's the reason that he climbed the tree. But whenever we read a story in the Bible, it's very important to understand that the author does not include every single detail about what happens. The author includes those details that they feel are the most important in that given situation. So it drives us to really look at what is there. And he includes this detail about him being short. Now, I'm speculating once again here that it's possible that Zacchaeus didn't like being short. I don't know this. It doesn't say that specifically. But you've got to wonder that um, bullying likely didn't just begin with our generation. It's very possible that as a youngster back then, that Zacchaeus, perhaps because of being small stature, maybe some of the big guys picked on him. I have no idea. But I wanted to point this out simply because I know that in our world, Many of us may feel unworthy or have lesser value because there's a physical attribute that we deal with and we don't like it about ourselves. And we think that because I don't like this particular thing about myself, then surely other people aren't going to like me either. And they're not going to want to be my friend because maybe I am just short. And maybe Zacchaeus felt this way, maybe he did not. What I do know is that when he heard that Jesus was headed to town, the, gra- the crowd had already began to gather. Jesus was very popular at this time. And I can just picture Zacchaeus trying to figure out how in the world he's going to, to see Jesus because he really wanted to know, is this the Messiah? And he's probably initially maybe crowding, excuse me, excuse me, jabbing with an elbow, pushing his way through. And then he gets this idea to somehow skirt around the crowd and run on up ahead, climb up this tree because he just wanted to get a glimpse of Jesus. Well, funny thing, Jesus knew somebody was seeking him on that day. And when he passed by, he looked right up at Zacchaeus in that tree. In verse 6, so he, Zacchaeus, quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. This joyful experience of Zacchaeus meeting Jesus. But still... There were some naysayers. And all who saw in verse 7 began to complain. He's gone to stay with a sinful man. Now perhaps they were jealous. I don't know. Maybe they saw themselves as much better than Zacchaeus. Because after all, Zacchaeus was the most sinful of sinners as a tax collector. And they wondered why Jesus would not go to their house for dinner. Instead he would go over to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus was very Unpopular and the people could not understand it. In verse 8, Bazacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor. Lord, and if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Today salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham, as if Jesus is restoring honor to Zacchaeus. For the son of man has come to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus sought after Jesus and Jesus found him. It's interesting here because Zacchaeus's heart was already inclined towards godly things. Jesus did not have to command him, go sell all of your possessions and give your money away to the poor make it right with all the people you've cheated Zacchaeus immediately had a heart for God and chose to do these things you see Zacchaeus knew that he was lost and unworthy and he desperately wanted to be found and restored he did not want anything to come between him and Jesus this savior that he met Zacchaeus set his eyes on Jesus, and even as the worst sinner, he was saved. Now, as I stated stated earlier when I gave you guys the, the spoiler alert, and it's worth repeating once again, when we talk about our worth, it's not an elevation of self but a focus on who God is. We enter our fort of worthiness when we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, our Savior. I'm going to go ahead and put this quote up on the screen by Gary Miller. He says this Rather than gazing morosely inward, our great need is to allow gospel light to flood in and show us the reality of God's work in our lives. Now, whether you've been a Christian for 30 years, 50 years, a day, you just are here seeking not sure what this Jesus thing is all about and you just have a few questions and you want to come and check it out or you know sometimes you just get drugged into church by a friend and you want to be nice so you say okay even though they may not win a lamb for you showing up today (laughs) I think it's really important no matter where we are at in our spiritual journey to stop and take a look at this thing called the gospel If we want the gospel light to flood into our lives, then it's important to continually have a basic, ongoing understanding of what the gospel is. The gospel, quickly and easily, is good news. But it's the good news of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ to give us salvation through his grace and restore us to God. I was recently reading in Luke 12 when Jesus said that not a single sparrow is forgotten before God, and that God counts every single hair on our head. Can you even imagine that? As I was reading this, a hair fell out of my head and landed on the page of my Bible. And I thought, well, God, there's one less hair you have to count now, (laughs) Some of us, we know it's much easier for God to count the hairs on our head than others. But it's just amazing that he sees us with so much value that he's willing to do that. And if he cares about those sparrows, how much more does he care about us and love us? This is so foundational of all that God has done for us in the gospel. So here are just a couple of key Key points for us to never forget about the good news, the gospel of God. To redeem us, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live on earth, fully God and fully man. man. He lived a completely sinless life. 1 Corinthians 5.21 says this, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Now, Jesus then was sacrificed on the cross. He was killed for our sins. In place of us, Jesus took that spot on the cross. He paid the price for our sins. Romans 5.8 says, But God proves his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But it doesn't end there because, you see, three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the grave. Romans 6, 10 through 11 says, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. On our behalf, Jesus conquered death so that we too can live without dying in God's presence. So how are we even supposed to respond to the good news? Just like Matthew and Zacchaeus, I think one of the first things that we do is, is admit and confess that we are the sinners. We are the lost that Jesus came to save. Romans ten nine, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And when we confess this and when we believe this, the most cool thing happens. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to enter into our hearts. I love the way the Amplified Bible describes it Now, as Jesus is explaining to his disciples prior to his death that after he ascends into heaven, he's going to send the Holy Spirit into their hearts. John 16, 7 in the Amplified Bible reads this way. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, and then in parentheses it says, comforter, advocate, intercessor, counselor, strengthener, standby, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him the Holy Spirit to you to be in close fellowship with you. With the Holy Spirit's help, we get to boldly <laughs> and I mean boldly invite our friends to the table. Remember, this is a whole series about friendship. 2 Corinthians 5:17 through 20 says this, check it out. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God. God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. What, given us the ministry of reconciliation? That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, And he has committed the the message of reconciliation to us. Now listen to this part in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You see, when we get caught up in all of this comparison game, we get caught up with this fear of speaking, fear oh, I'm going to say something stupid or do something that they're going to think is weird. We get this fear of being rejected. It's important for us to be brought back and to remember who we are in Jesus Christ. You see, when we find our worth in Christ, we shift our focus from inside of us to outside to others. John, 1 John 4, 10 through 11 says... Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. When we look to Jesus, he says, know me, look to me, follow me. Then all of a sudden, it's like, look to others. Love them. The first thing that Matthew and Zacchaeus did when they met Jesus was to reach out to the others in their community in an act of love. Matthew, to bring them to meet Jesus, Zacchaeus, to restore them and to give them his riches. They loved others just as we are to do. Sometimes these feelings of unworthiness creep in, even when we don't want them to. This is what I deal with. And this is what God and the Holy Spirit is speaking to me. He says, Ronnie, I want you to get this. Get this. We need to be reminded of all that Jesus has done for us and who we are to him. One of the ways that we do this is that we share, as a body of believers, into this sacrament we call communion. It's not just about going through the motions of a religious rite. It's about reconnecting with all that Jesus has done for us through his sacrificial death. As we focus on our friendship and our relationship, I think it's a beautiful thing that we as the body of Christ can share together in this act of communion. Now, I want to throw this as a challenge out to you. If you've got something that you know is going on between you and one of your brothers or sisters in Christ, this might be a really good time before you take communion to maybe go out into the lobby on your phone and maybe you need to say, I'm sorry. Maybe you need to say, hey, let's clear this up between us. Let's restore the relationship with each other. Maybe you feel that there's some sin in your life and you've been trying to hide it from God. I got news for you. He sees it. He knows it's there. Maybe this is a beautiful time before you partake of communion to ask God to forgive you, to bring it out in confession to him. So what we're going to do, we've got some um, communion stations. We've got one up here, and we've got one back there. And the worship team is going to lead us in a time of worship. And during that time, when you are ready, you may come up and grab the the bread and the juice and take it back to your seat and, and when you feel led go ahead and partake on that but I want to read to us about the first communion that Jesus shared with his disciples in Matthew 26, 26 through 28 we read as they were eating Jesus took bread blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said take and eat this is my body then he took a cup And after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we sit today in our fort of worthiness with you and inviting other people to come and sit in our fort of worthiness with us, and what a wonderful privilege it is for us to be your ambassadors to others that we look to you and then you say now I want you to look to them get over ourselves and quit feeling unworthy because in you we have so much worth and so much value and when we are reminded of that Lord it is absolutely astounding the boldness that that we can then because we know that the greatest thing we can do for friendship is to introduce our friends to you. And now, Jesus, we we come and pause and we remember that your body was broken and that your blood was shed for our sins. And we thank you for this reminder. We thank you for this time of worship with you. In your holy name I pray, amen. If you want to go ahead and stand with me now, and when you are ready, go ahead and, and help yourself to the communion.
1: manner of love is this? That you would lay down your life You paid the price, the sacrifice for redemption Now I am determined to know Christ in Him crucified Now alive and the power in me child ONE MORE TIME. Thank you. Thank you that the grace has been given to us. It's grace that we could never earn. It's truly out of the love from your heart. So, as we contemplate that grace, that forgiveness, and the freedom that was found in that. We just pray that you inspire us to be your hands and your feet as we enter into the world that you created, that the impact that is made through our actions,
0: that the focus is on you and only you.